Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We'll continue in the series that your church is in uh, from that book, 1 John. I'd like to, before I read Scripture, I'd like to thank you for your partnership as a church in missions and ministry uh, because people like you faithfully give to your church and your church generously gives to missions through the cooperative program. A state missionary like myself can serve uh, churches in a region and do so because of the work uh, that you are partnering in. I want to remind you also that this morning that there are over 3,600 international missionaries in various parts of the world faithfully sharing the gospel because people like you faithfully give to your church and your church generously gives to missions through the cooperative program. So thank you for your partnership in missions. Stand with me if you will in honor of the reading of God's Word. Our subject this morning is how should we as a Christian address our sin? How should we as a Christian address our sin? 1 John 2 speaks to that, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it serves as a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We pray that You will help us to hide and treasure these words in our hearts and minds that we might not sin against You. Lord, uh, we praise You for this day. This is a day that You have made. And because You have made it, we rejoice and we're glad in it. We are glad that You love us the way that You do. We are glad that You've openly displayed and demonstrated Your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Your Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus, died for us. And we're grateful for that today. We are grateful that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is to address our sin problem. We're grateful we're here today not to memorialize a dead hero in Jesus, but we're here to worship the risen Christ. We're grateful that we don't have to wait till Easter every year to celebrate that, but we're grateful that every single time we gather, that we gather to celebrate that Jesus is alive. We are grateful for the opportunity to assemble here. We know that Your Word encourages us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. 
but to encourage one another, to spur one another on to love and good works. And I thank You for those that are here today, Lord, who are demonstrating that, that they are here, Lord, not only to receive from Your Word and from Your Holy Spirit, but they are here to encourage one another. And we pray that what we experience here today might encourage us to leave this place today and be on mission Christians, being salt and light and making a real and true difference in the world in which we live. Father, we pray that You will help us to glean from Your Word today, from this passage that we have read, Your truth, and help us, Lord, to esteem it in high regard, and help us, Lord, to esteem Your Word as our highest source of authority. Lord, uh, I just uh, thank You for the church here. I thank You for uh, their staff. I thank You for uh, Brother Scott. Lord, I thank You for his friendship. And Lord, I just thank You for Andrew and others, Lord, here on staff that faithfully serve You regularly. Bless them. Bless the search team. Give them wisdom and guidance and direction. And we trust You in helping to lead them to uh, the next pastor of this church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. How many of you have heard this statement? You can't have your cake and eat it too. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay? Most of us have heard that statement. You can't have your cake and eat it too. That statement is a reminder you can't enjoy two things that are mutually exclusive of one another. If I said to you, I want to eat my piece of cake that I have here, but I want to have it tomorrow, you'd say, you can't do that. If I say to you, well, I want to, uh, I want to have my cake and be able to have it tomorrow, but I want to eat it today, you'd say, can't do that. They are mutually exclusive of one another. John, in writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was addressing false teaching that was coming from a group known as Gnostics. Uh, Warren Wearsby, in describing the teaching of the Gnostics during John's days, wrote that they were teaching, number one, that matter, matter was evil, uh, including our bodies. And therefore, Christ did not come in the flesh. If matter was evil, that meant to them that Christ was not fully human. And thus, we believe, obviously, that He was both fully human, 100% man, but He was also 100% God. But the Gnostics were teaching he was, not, he was not human. He did not come in the flesh. He only appeared to be a real man. Uh, they were teaching that the knowledge of truth, knowledge was more important than living the truth. They taught that only a, quote, spiritual few, end quote, could understand spiritual truths. And it was convenient that they were among those spiritually, spiritual few. <laughs> only they could understand spiritual truths. And so you see throughout the book of John, you see John addressing these false teachings, which really 
brought confusion to the early Christians. They knew what they had been told and taught, but they began to wonder about the validity of what they've been taught and told. Uh, the, the Gnostics basically said, you can have your cake and eat it too. They said, you can live a life of sin because your, your body, your matter is evil, your body is evil, You're a, you just go on in sin and you can still have fellowship with God. But John confronts that, that lie in particularly in the book, but particularly in this passage of Scripture. False doctrine was prevalent then in John's day. Uh, false teaching is prevalent today. And at the heart of these six verses uh, really are these questions. How do we live in a sinful world as followers of Christ in a way that glorifies Him and fulfills our God-given purpose? How do we do that? How do we address our sin in the world in which we live? Specifically, how do we address sin in our own life in a way that glorifies God and fulfills His intention and His plan for us? Well, as we think about those questions and that issue, I'd like for us to look at three things that, I, that uh, come from this passage of Scripture. Number one, if we're going to address our sin in a way that pleases God, we need to understand God's intention related to sin. Look back at verse 1. Verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I want you to note those two phrases in this verse. Phrase one, underlined on the screen, so that you may not sin. Phrase two, but if anyone does. But if anyone does. John is, uh, is giving a warning and giving an encouragement. The warning is one of not resigning yourself to a life of sin. To resign yourself would be to have this attitude. I'm a sinner, and sinners sin. So when I sin, I'm just doing that which flows from who I am. And so there's a there's a resignation to sinning. I sin because that's who I am. That's who I'll always be. John warns us that we not take that route or that approach. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you, you don't sin. So that you don't practice a life of sin. But then in the next, very next verse, he says, but if anyone does... And John was recognizing the fact that there, there's this tension, this healthy tension that we live with in life. On the one hand, God's plan is, is for us to not sin. But on the other hand, we, even though we're followers of Christ, 
And I'm going to use the word that the Bible uses at times. It's been convoluted with the use of it in our modern times. But Paul used the term saints. A saint is a follower of Christ. A saint is a Christian. And so you can take two approaches, one to avoid. I'm a sinner, so sinning is what I've resigned myself to. We need to avoid that. Or you look at yourself in this way, I am a saint, not, not sinless perfection, not an elite person that's recognized above all others, but I'm a saint or a better term, contemporary term, I'm a follower of Jesus who sometimes sins. Just to be frank and honest, I've not reached, nor have you, sinless perfection. John recognized that. He, 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 he encouraged us to avoid resignation, but he encourages us to claim sanctification, to engage in sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord of your life, in the moment of your placing faith in Him, He set you apart for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose was to live the remainder of your life differently. To live the remainder of your life honoring and glorifying Him with your life. So sanctification involves the setting apart initially, but sanctification also involves a process. It's a process of walking with Christ and in doing so, growing in Christ. And as you grow in Christ, you, your life begins to look more and more like Jesus and it looks less and less like the person you were before you met Jesus. And so He's encouraging us to embrace the reality of sanctification. It is not normal for me to practice sin. God wants me to be victorious over it. And that's, that's the good news. The good news is this, that prior to having faith in Christ, this is how the Bible describes us. We were slaves to sin. But if any man be in Christ, the Scripture says, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. The old is past. The new has come. A new heart. The Holy Spirit, there's the newness of the indwelling Spirit within us that enables us not to just resign ourselves as sinners to always sin, but to realize that in Christ and through the transforming power of His Holy Spirit that lives in us as believers, we can be victorious over sin. To say I've reached the point of sinless perfection would be pride, prideful. And I've only known one person who honestly believed about himself that he had reached a point of sinless perfection and taught that others could do the same. And so John is saying, I write these things so that you may not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, we go back to Romans chapter 6. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul wrote this. He said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make, it, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. So we need to understand God's intention related to sin. We need to understand that we can't hold on to our sin on the one hand and at the same time grasp a close relationship with God. They are mutually exclusive. 1 Peter 2, 24, we're reminded that Jesus bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, we've been healed. Secondly, we need to trust in Christ's finished work and in His continued work of dealing with our sin. Let's look first at His finished work in verse 2. Verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. Uh, that word translated in, in, in other translations is, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This this word about the finished work of Jesus reminds us of a number of things. First, that God is holy and God must punish sin. God is not a father or a God who just winks at sin and says, that's okay. But God is holy and just and must punish sin. We're reminded as we read Scripture that God's holiness is revealed in the fact that His wrath is expressed against sin. But the good news of the Gospel is this, that while God is holy and just and must punish sin, and His wrath is expressed against sin, Jesus bore that wrath 
in Himself, on his, in His body, when He died on the cross. He, he bore the, the wrath that you and I deserved. He, he, he sacrificed Himself. He took upon Himself the penalty and the punishment for sin that you and I deserve. But He died for us. He died in our place. And so the cross, the death of Jesus, reveals the wrath of God against sin. At the same time, it's revealing the love of God for sinners. You see the love of God and its greatest display at the cross. You see the wrath of God against sin displayed to its greatest extent at the cross. And so when we sin, we need to realize that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We could not say, you know what, I'm going to make up for it because you can never make up for your own sin. We could not say, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and become a better person because all of our righteousness and goodness is as a pile of filthy rags. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He did for us in His death, burial, and resurrection what we could not do for ourselves. If you have never placed faith and trust in Jesus as Lord of your life, if you, if you know about God and you know about Jesus, but you've never placed faith in Him, realize this, that Jesus died that you might be forgiven of your sins. Jesus paid it all, the hymn said. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. John also addresses Jesus' continued work. When it says in the first part of, or latter part of verse 1, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is one, someone who comes alongside, who speaks on behalf of another. The Greek term here uh, for advocate is one that's also used in other parts of the Gospels for the Holy Spirit, the one who, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us. Jesus is the one who comes alongside of us. He speaks for us on our behalf to the Father. Now the picture here is not one of Jesus having to convince a reluctant Father to forgive us. But the picture here is that as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, His presence is a reminder of His finished work and His forgiveness of sinners like you and me. We have an advocate in Jesus. The Scripture also tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that we have an accuser in Satan. Revelation 12.10 says this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. 
The work of our enemy is to accuse us. When we sin, he wants to push us down. He wants to condemn us. He wants to try to convince us that we're not forgiven. Our enemy wants to point back to sins, even sins that have been that we've confessed and say to us through his accusation, you can't be forgiven for that. But John reminds us that when we sin, we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf, our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Thank God. Thank God that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank God that when we sin, Jesus is our advocate before the Father. There's a third thing here. We need to also live with our authority for dealing with our sin being the Word of God. Now why is this important? Uh, Why was it important during John's day? Well, uh, during John's day, there was confusion about what was right, what was wrong. Here were these people, they seemed to be very intelligent, they seemed to be spiritual, and they were saying things about Jesus that were totally contrary to what they'd heard about Jesus through the apostles. And so they began to ask, you know, what what is truth? Uh, They were hearing things like, you can live a life of sin and still have close fellowship with God. And they, were, they realized that was contradictory to what they had been told and taught through the apostles. So that they were confused. And so John says to them, by this we know, this is verse 3, by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. So in my mind and Bible, I've underlined three things here. I've underlined the statement, if we keep his commandments, and it's said again in verse 4, a person who does not keep his commandments. And then in verse 5, whoever keeps His Word. When you and I make decisions about right and wrong, about what is sin and what is not, we do so guided in our thinking and in our decision-making process by some source of authority. And this question is basically at the root of our decision. How did I arrive at that? Have you ever talked with someone about faith issues and what they were communicating just seemed to be totally contrary to what you knew about Scripture? Here's a good question to ask. How did you arrive at that belief that that is true or that is right or that is okay? How did you arrive at that? John tells us how we ought to arrive at that on every issue of life related to, is this truth or not? Or is this falsehood? Is this sin or not? What is right? How do I arrive at that? Well, as we realize the world in which we live in, 
In the world in which John lived in, we realize that often people elevate things above Scripture as their source of authority on how they arrived at that. One is logic. Logic uh, has behind it this, this belief or attitude. I know that this is true, or I know that this is right, and that's okay, because I've given it a lot of thought. And I didn't come to this conclusion just on a whim, but I've thought it through, and I believe this is true or this is right, because I've given it a lot of thought. Logic becomes the highest source of authority. John was, was facing this in his day. The Gnostics taught. They sounded great. They sounded intelligent. They even sounded spiritual. How did they, how did they arrive at what they were saying? It's basically logic. Now I'm not saying to us this morning that we ought not be thinkers. Christians ought to be thinkers. I'm not saying to us this morning we ought to check our brains at the door. But here's what I am saying. As we think through the issues of life and culture, and, and more specifically, as we consider truth, what is truth, and as we consider What's the truth about sin in my life? I might think something on the one hand, but if what I think is in direct opposition to what Scripture clearly teaches, then I, I need to make my logic subservient to the higher authority of Scripture. And I need to be willing to say humbly, even though I think this, this is what the Scripture has to say and therefore, I choose, to, I choose to follow His Word. I choose to keep, to use John's terminology, to keep His Word, to keep His commandments. Here's another authority. Tradition. If tradition is your main authority, then you might say things like, well, this is, this is right because I've, I've always been taught that this was right. This is true because I've always been taught that this is true. And yet, <clears throat> Jesus often confronted people, and, and they were mostly religious leaders, who had as their highest authority their tradition. On one occasion, they, they uh, criticized Jesus for not going through the ceremonial washings that they thought a person ought to go through before they ate. And Jesus confronted them and said to them, why do you hold to your traditions, but you reject the Word of God? Now I'm not saying that we ought to throw tradition out like a baby's thrown out with the bathwater. But what I am saying is this, if if I've been taught something throughout my life and I begin to read Scripture for myself and I come to a realization that what I've been taught, even though it came from what I considered reliable people, maybe family, maybe religious people, and yet I see that what I've been taught in terms of tradition is in clear violation of the teaching of Scripture, then I have to humbly be willing to say, I submit to 
the teaching of God's Word. I want to keep His commandments. I want to keep His Word. There's another source of authority. Culture. Culture. If, if culture is your source of authority, you might tend to say, I believe this is right because our culture or our society accepts it as right. But if we begin to read Scripture and understand Scripture and we realize that many people might be saying something is true or many people might be saying something is right, but if Scripture says otherwise, then I must humbly be willing to say, I choose as my highest authority what does the Bible say about it. So John is saying to us this, that we ought to live our life in such a way that whether we introspectively ask the question or someone else asks us this question, how did you arrive at that conclusion? We ought to, be, we ought to honestly be able to say, I believe that the Bible teaches it. That's why. I believe the Bible teaches it. And I'm not saying we use the Bible as a weapon to hit people over the head, but I'm saying use it for what it is. It's the Word of God. This is not just like the works of Shakespeare, but it's the Word of God. And God gave us His Word so that we wouldn't flop like a fish out of water in life, so that when we would address false teaching, which they did in John's day, which we do in our day, we'd have a standard to go by and John reminds us of that standard in dealing with our own sin. How should we arrive at the conclusion that something's sinful in our life and therefore we need to confess it and repent of it? What does the Scripture have to say about it? And that leads me to... I want to go back to 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says this about how we deal with sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. That's good news. That word confess in the Greek literally means to say the same. Logeo, homo logeo is the Greek term. Logeo means to say. Homo means the same. When, if we genuinely confess our sin, this is what we do. We honestly say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. We literally take sides with God in condemning the sin and acknowledging the sin. And, and confession, is, confession is not admitting it and going out and repeating it. Confession is saying the same thing about it that God says about it. And built into that, that concept and word of confession is another biblical teaching called repentance. If I say the same thing about my sin that God says about it, I don't want to continue in it. I want to forsake it. I want to have a different view of it. I want to have a change of mind that results in a change of heart and a change of direction known as repentance. If we confess our sin, this is the good news. God's faithful. God's just. God will forgive us 
of our sin and He will cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. As a Christian, we don't confess our sin in order to stay saved. Christ's finished work and our faith and trust in Him and Him alone is what saved us. But we confess our sin in order to continue in this process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ, less and less like our old self, living like who we are, new creatures in Christ. God, help us to live our lives in such a way that they glorify You. And help us, Lord, to live in such a way that we fully live out Your purpose and Your plan in our life, and more specifically, Your purpose and plan on how we address sin in our own life. Would you bow your head with me? We're just going to enter into a time of just uh, a time with God here. And I'm going to ask you to join me in just asking the Lord to search our hearts and to know our ways and just reveal any sin, any wicked way in us. Lord, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You that Your love is such that You love us right where we we are, but You love us so much You don't want us to remain right where we are. Thank You that You don't bless us in sin. Thank You that You call us out of sin. Thank You that the work of Your Holy Spirit is not to condemn and push us down, but thank You that the work of Your Holy Spirit is to point us to the solution, Jesus. To remind us of His advocacy on our behalf. To remind us of His finished work. Lord, we ask for Your forgiveness today for sins of omission. We ask Your forgiveness for times when we've known, we've known what You've wanted and what You've asked of us and what we need to do But we've just pridefully said no. We've just pridefully avoided doing that which You've asked us and led us by Your Spirit to do. Forgive us for sins of omission. And Lord, as we confess them, give us the empowerment of Your Spirit to to do that which You call us to do in obedience. Lord, forgive us for sins of commission today. Forgive us for times that we've chosen like sheep to go astray. We knew knew the sinfulness of it. We chose it anyway. Forgive us, God, for sins of commission. Our desire is to have fellowship with You, a close relationship with You. Out of great love, for the love that you showed us first. Thank you, Lord.
Lord, Lord Jesus, we do not want to live a life that displeases you just because of what you've done for us. You gave your life. Thank you. You died in our place. Thank you. You bore the wrath of the Father on your body for us. Thank you. Out of the continued awareness of your great love for us, help us, Lord, to express our love to you in the way that we live. Help us to walk as you walked. Make us today, even in this invitation time, less like our old self, more like Jesus. Lord, I pray as we sing this invitation and offer it, I pray that you will help those in whom you're at work even now to come forward and publicly acknowledge their their spiritual commitment that you're calling them to make. I pray if there's a person here today who has never placed faith in Jesus, they know about Him, but have never confess their sins and place faith in Him, I pray that this might be the day that as we know that your Scripture said that you became the propitiation for our sins, for the Christians that John was immediately writing to, but John said you, you, you became the propitiation for the sins of the world. So Lord, I pray that every person here today would recognize that they're in that group of people to whom you offer grace and forgiveness today because of the finished work of Christ. I pray that someone here today, someone viewing from from home, Lord, would would receive Christ today. They would confess and acknowledge their sin and in, in their heart and with their mouth believe and confess that Jesus died for them and He was raised up from the dead. I pray that there'd be a a yielding, a giving over of their life to Jesus as Lord to follow Him all the days of their life. Lord, if there's someone here today who needs to take the step of obedience in baptism or church membership, we pray that You would help them to express that today. We pray this all in the name of Jesus and for His sake we pray.